Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 30. In this episode, I speak with Carla in Washington about distinguishing difference from disorder in childhood speech and language disorders in multilingual children. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, which are now up to date, and find more information about our guests. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to episode 30 of See, Hear, Speak podcast. Today I have guest Carla Washington, and I will have her start by introducing herself. Well, hello, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, My name is Carla Washington, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio, USA. I'm also director of the Pediatric Language Literacy and Speech Outcomes Lab. It's a mouthful, PEDALS for short, where we focus on outcomes across the linguistic spectrum from monolingual to multilingual development. And our primary foci include distinguishing difference from disorder, documenting treatment outcomes, and building capacity in SLPs by providing them with new knowledge and skill sets for working with children and families who do not speak the same language as they do. So that's me, and we have an Instagram page at at pedals. So it's at P-E-D-L-L-S underscore lab underscore. That's our Instagram. And then for Twitter, it's at L-L-S underscore P-E-D. The other handle was already taken by the time we set up our <laughs> Twitter. So great, happy to be here. <laughs> oh, that's great, because we have a lot of followers who are on Twitter and Instagram, so that's fantastic to get that Excellent. plug out there. Um, that's great. So I'll just jump right in with the first question. So we know it's common for children of the world to speak more than one language. And I would argue it's very useful to speak more than one language. That should be, you know, continuing to be what we strive for. And it's estimated that up to half of the world population is bilingual. But the difficulty comes in deciding what bilingualism is and gathering reliable statistics around multilingualism. So not just two languages, but more than one language. So with this reality in mind, What are some of the main issues you see around diagnosing and treating speech and language disorders in multilingual or bilingual children within the context of your work? Because I know it's a big focus of your work. Right. Yes, yes. Great question. And um, whenever I hear this topic addressed, the first thing I sort of pigeonhole to is the the category of children. And because it's true that it's common for children of the world to speak more than one language, but it is in fact true that the majority of children in the world speak more than one language. So it's not just that it's common, numerically speaking, it's a large proportion of the children that do. And so I think one of the first things that I would think about is having a consistent and agreed upon definition of what is bilingualism and what is multiculturalism. And what is it? If we can all come from the same starting point, then data that follow can then be compared across studies so that we can understand outcomes and treat difference versus, and sorry, treat disorders. I know what is considered to be different. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the groups that I have been a part of is the International Expert Panel on Multilingual Children's Speech. It is chaired by Professor Sharon McLeod and Dr. Sarah Verdon in Australia at Charles Sturt University. And this um, group of experts, sort of a consortium of researchers across the world, was established in 2012. And Professor McLeod invited me to join this group, knowing of my work in uh, interested in multilingualism. 
So as I use that word and I talk about this group, um, this group is comprised of more than 40 um, international researchers who work with multilingual children around the world. So they would treat in the native language and maybe in the more matrix or the ambient languages as referred to um, in the literature. And so what we did as a group uh, is that we developed a position statement on working with children who are multilingual. And the first thing we did was to have a definition. What are we going to define this group as? And so as a group, we expanded on a definition by Greg and McLeod from 2012 to say that people who are multilingual, including children, are acquiring more than one language, are able to comprehend and or produce two or more languages in oral, manual, or written form with at least a basic level of functional proficiency or use regardless of the age at which the languages were learned. Mm -hmm. And so this is part of our um, international expert panel statement, position statement that's available online through Charles Sturt University. And it's also available as part of publications we produced in Journal of Communication Disorders and the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology. So we, using that definition, it's helped us to have um, also apply a broader conceptualization about bilingualism to understand language pairings that might be different. So for example, um, if we have a language pairing like Spanish and English, one is Germanic, one is a Romance language, and we know that how that pairing comes together, the typological properties associated might then be different from say a language that I study, which would be Jamaican Creole and English, where one is considered to be a parent language or a historical contributor to the other. So English is the lexifier language of Jamaican Creole because Jamaican Creole is an English-based Creole. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the history of most Creole languages. They have a parent language. Now, is that linguistic typology different from the one that's more traditionally studied? It's very possible. So while we have a definition that informs our practice, how those language parents come together is another consideration. Hmm. So broadening our understanding of multilingualism beyond the well-studied typologies is also what's needed. Hmm. And we, we do study those well-studied pairings simply because of the numbers. Like there are more people in the world that might speak those pairings than say people who speak Jamaican Creole and English. Hmm. So there's a practical consideration. Um, I also consider defining within multiculturalism and multilingualism is what is cultural competence, what is cultural responsivity, and what's cultural humility. Now, the latter mentioned humility is much more recent. I think within the literature, it's not recent in terms of its existence. And when we think about cultural competence or culture, it's that congruent set of attitudes, behaviors, and policies that come together in a system, an agency, or among professionals that enable the system, the agency, or the professional to work effectively across different cultural situations. And then that would also embody, embody ethical considerations, you know, respecting the background of the person, the choices of the, the individuals, and also things that might be um, related to more justice, like social justice issues. And so that's, you, you, we build the competence by equipping, in our case, I think about professionals such as speech and language pathologists with the knowledge and skills that they need to perform equitably across varieties of linguistic variation and also cultural variation. But you don't want to just equip them with the skills. You want them to be able to actually act on those skills, to be able to be responsive to the clients that come um, to their clinic or when they go to school settings or homes or whatever setting it might be. Also, I consider the humility. So while you might have all the cultural competence and you're being responsive, 
you might encounter someone who, if you look solely at their name, you might make an assumption that this person's from a particular culture, might speak a particular language, when that is not the case. So for example, not all um, speakers from Mexico speak Spanish. They might speak a native tongue, a native uh, tongue that is not Spanish per se, but it might be more indigenous of an indigenous language. And so then we have to consider, okay, as much as we might be um, cognizant and have some experiences about Spanish English bilinguals who are of Mexican ancestry, it doesn't mean that all are, how can I be responsive to those who are different mm. from my standard profile? So there's the humility in accepting the truth that you don't know everything about all cultures. You know something about a subset of one culture that can then maybe springboard inform the other culture that you're going to be interacting with. So third, I also think about the linguistic homogeneity of the profession. So um, there's this famous quote, Cesar and Kohler said in 2007, which was that we need to close the gap between the linguistic homogeneity of the profession and the linguistic diversity of the clientele. So the majority of children and, and I always say children because this is my area of focus, um, on the caseload of the speech and language pathologist is going to be at least half that do not speak the same language as the SLP. And so where does that put the speech language pathologist? We don't expect, there are over 8,000 languages in the world. We do not expect the speech language pathologist to be able to speak all of the languages spoken by their clients. But we want them to have cultural humility, responsivity, and competence to know what they could do to bridge the gap. Are there interpreters? Now online there's Google, and I'm telling you, Google has a lot of information that is actually quite well vetted and made available. The International Expert Panel has a website through the, the it's called, um, oh my goodness, I'm drawing a blank. It's through Charles Sturt University. Mm -hmm. And online, there are a number of resources available mm -hmm. that speech and language pathologists can have access to and it's freely available mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. um, what I also consider my fourth um, topic here is distinguishing difference from disorder. Yes. So. It looks, it might look the same, and you assume that what in fact might be a disorder in one language is actually a well-formed feature of another language. So how are you going to know this distinction? So if we go back to just understanding what is a difference, it's usually a rule-governed system that deviates somewhat from the mainstream, but the point being it's rule-governed, with the disorder being where the individual has difficulties learning all properties of all languages and not just the language which they're faced with. So it's a key distinction. And with experience, it's going to get better, especially with newer um, speech and language pathologists. You have those speech pathologists who are uh, working in the area of bilingualism, but in fact, it's only about uh, four, four to 5% of um, ASHA registered SLPs. Really? That, uh, yes, it's okay, a very, very mismatch. I know, I know. It is the mismatch. And I want to make sure I double check my numbers um, because I did look that up. 8.2% of the, the SLP profession are from a racial minority. And that was a 2019 year end report. Wow. And only 4%, 5% are listed as having the bilingual skills sufficient for clinical work with the population. What a mismatch. It's quite the mismatch. You oh, have to do so much better. And a big part of all these issues that you talked about is the research you're doing. So you're tackling so many of these issues. So how are you tackling some of these issues? Yes. 
thank you. A nice transition into um, <laughs> what I wanted to talk about next. So to sort of guide my practice as an educator, a researcher, and a clinician, I apply the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health Framework, the one for children and youth, and it's offered by the World Health Organization. So it provides a comprehensive way of conceptualizing and defining and establishing children's functionality when disability might be present. So we think about it, it has two parts. Part one considers body functions and structures and activities and participation. So if we think about, you know, structurally, what are some of the things that we as speech pathologists focus on? It's usually head and neck. Um, when we think about activities, you know, what's an activity we might work on? It might be speaking or it might be writing. And then we think about participation, it's the ability to apply that skill set. So speaking to produce a speech sound, the skill set of being understood by others is the participation. So how intelligible are you to people in your environment? And then we think about those contextual factors that impact on body functioning and structures. Well, we think about things like the language spoken, socioeconomic status, um, the, um, the access to, um, to services that might be needed, the relationship between the client and the clinician. In fact, the speech language pathologist is listed in this framework and the relationship between the speech pathologist and the child is a factor that could impact an outcome. So if the, there's this mismatch, this linguistic and cultural mismatch between client and SLP, could that impact outcome? It could in the fact that maybe a child is misdiagnosed and misdiagnosis informs both over and under diagnosis because disorders do occur in the multilingual context but sometimes the monolingual slp might misinterpret what is actually disordered and attribute it to being a difference because they're less aware of the features of the language so in our educational context and part of the icf framework when we think about those contextual factors is in the school educational setting for slps who are learning we need to improve upon how much they learn about what is disordered and what is different to increase their multicultural competence once again and their responsivity and also humility humility for sure um, yes and then i also use methodological approaches mm -hmm. such as i use descriptive studies one thing we have looked at this was informed by professor sharon mcleod's work is to use drawings to understand young children's talking experiences where we use visual analog scales and we examine okay tell us about the talking partners that you have um, how do you feel about the way you talk tell us about the people who you talk with and they use such as a visual scale and they color and let us know we analyze the drawings using descriptive techniques and in 2018, we submitted um, this, an abstract to ASHA and our student won the, um, the award for um, highest rated abstract in her category, which was in the, the global mm -hmm. category. And so we, this is important for speech pathologists because if we can find creative ways of overcoming a linguistic barrier, then we can find more ways of being informed by the children and this is actually responsive to article 12 of the united nations conventions on the rights of the child so the rights of the child to be heard in ways that the child can communicate and the rights of the child to be included in matters that pertain to them and so how are we going to include kids especially the group that i'm looking at you know these young kids they can't all read and write but they do draw wow. and so we just use the drawings and provide interpretations about those drawings um i also use computerized techniques um to understand um 
speech profiles, language profiles, but primarily speech, because we want to increase more objectivity into the decision making process. So, okay, to know that this is um, a P, for example, as in Peter, the in initial position, what does that look like acoustically? Or when we want to um, increase accuracy in transcriptions, we look at uh, the FON program. It's a software developed by Yvonne Rose um, from Newfoundland. I like to give a plug to Canadians whenever I can. And my colleague Tara McAllister at NYU, she actually helped to improve the sort of clinical applications of FON. And we are using FON right now. Within FON, what you can do, you include, you insert audio recordings of the, the participant, and then you can transcribe based on what you're hearing. And if there's an IPA map in FON, a computerized software, which then will link, uh, you'll get a transcription of a word, and then that can be linked to a spectrogram from PROT. And so you tie the transcription to the spectrogram, and then you can build acoustic models from there. Or you can look at enhancing the st or streamlining um, reliability analyses and just uh, you know being able to, to calculate things like PCC, PVC, PPC, and I should say that for the audience, that's percentage of consonants correct, percentage of vowels correct, percentage of phonemes correct, which are transcription-based methods for measuring intelligibility. But you can also use acoustic-based measures of looking at intelligibility as well. And so with FON, it helps us to increase the efficiency in those processes. I also use qualitative and quantitative approaches. One of my doctoral students used qualitative approaches to inform uh, linguistic features in child uh, productions based on adult models from the same linguistic community. It's been recommended by the International Expert Panel and also practice recommendations within our field to use those local models to inform you know, accuracy versus difference. So, so accuracy and difference versus error but we don't do that enough. And so using an adult model and analyzing, okay, what is what, what kind of linguistic patterns are we seeing here? Oh, do they tend to use something called linguistic variation, for example, where instead of using um, the term uh, binoculars in the Jamaican context, a lot of adults say spying glass or looking glass. Children do the same thing, but if they did that on a test, someone might say, well, that's an error. If we see an adult doing it, then we know that's not necessarily developmental, but it's actually a feature of the community. Mm. And then we look at, you know, ge ge generating uh, psychometric properties for tools that are available, such as discriminant analysis. And my student, Michelle Leon, just had her paper accepted in clinical linguistics and phonetics, detailing the sensitivity and specificity of the intelligibility and context scale and also the Jamaican Creole translation of that tool. So the sensitivity and the specificity allow us to examine um, true positives and true negatives. So is it people who are disordered are in fact categorized as disordered based on scores and people who are typical are categorized as being typical based on scores and we found that both the ICS, intelligibility and context scale, and the translated version in Jamaican Creole have good sensitivity and specificity. So I use these quantitative and qualitative methods. And so in that same umbrella, I disseminate research in, in milieus where um, scientists, students, clinicians naturally congregate, mm -hmm. such as a, a conference 
or in a, a, a well-read journal. So depending on the topic area, who do I want to capture? So I try to make strategic decisions about that as well. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And then it can also be applied across multiple languages. It seems like the techniques you have are really focusing on a broader issue. And you've really delved into really thinking about very specifically Jamaican Creole with each of these, yes. right? But, the, but it's yes. such a broader context. Everything you're saying yes. really can be applied to multiple languages. Yes, yes, yes. Very cool and very needed because it is like you oh, said. Thank you. With SLPs, you're like, how are you going to know all these languages? But having that cultural humility yes. and competence, as you mentioned, but also having these kinds of tools. And I want to dig a little deeper into what you found. I think the listeners will appreciate hearing even more about what you found with standard English versus Jamaican Creole to think about how this might be applied even to the languages in their context. Because I know speech pathologists have been thinking about this, you know, in depending on where they are. So when you, for instance, did, I want to think back to when you're talking about using fawn, fawn? Fawn, yes, fawn. I see it written, but I really don't see it that much. Um, and I think that's so amazing and using the ICS uh, format. What did you find you found good sensitivity specificity. What were some of the differences that you found and were they okay. expected? And, you know, what were you? Yeah, and also, how are you? You mentioned, of course, I'm going to throw you like 10 questions. So and then you, know, you mentioned that you think about your audience. Is your audience actually in Jamaica or is it in the States or both? And then okay. how do you, you know, when you get that disseminated, how is that kind of impacting their practice? Okay, so in terms of, and yes, I, I glossed over one of the things I do do to respond to that first question you asked is that I do offer an education abroad program or an international experience program through my university that brings faculty and students in CSD, in communication sciences and disorders, both in speech pathology and in audiology, to come on this um, service abroad experience where they get a cultural immersion, hands-on experience working with children and cultures that they are, that's different from the North American, United States, Midwestern culture, because University of Cincinnati is in the Midwest and most of our students are from that Midwest area that attend University of Cincinnati. And so most, some of them have never been outside the United States, you know, much less outside Ohio. And so I have taken some first time on a plane to go to Jamaica. And I believe that it's, it's cultural competence can be enhanced in the classroom, it can be. But I feel it's far more effective when we think about experiential learning, where they are immersed in this exchange. I always say to my students, when you see the whites of the students' eyes, you might forget everything you have learned. But don't worry, it'll come back. Have notes with you, make notes. So part of the preparation is that I've developed a course that goes along with the actual trip. And so they have to participate in the course first where the course is based primarily on getting them ready to work with this population, but having an understanding more broadly about multilingualism, multiculturalism. I talk about the culture we're going to be immersed in is the, the Jamaican culture. And that you know, um, we, one of the biggest parts of the Jamaican culture is not just its language, but the food. And I say the food is very good and I prepare them. I say bring plastic, you know, elastic waistlines because there might be a bit of a stretching occurring because when I go, I eat and they all eat. I go, don't come to Jamaica dieting. That just is not the way to experience the culture. <laughs> and that Jamaica has, it's the fourth best ice cream in the world at Devon House. And oh, it is 
outstanding and the students all we go there every year um, and they get to consume the lovely ice cream but more importantly they work with the parents the children the teachers the staff at the school learning to navigate all these different exchanges not everything can be scripted but because my program is part of a research study they're all part of my IRB, so Institutional Review Board. So they've all been appropriately trained. And I mean, there's some things you can't really train well. Mm -hmm. It comes with the practice and there might be just a natural affinity in some people. Some people might be more uncomfortable in being in a foreign setting. And so we try to prepare them as much with um, audio materials and videos of the culture showing how we've done the testing, all the activities, and then how we adapt in order to um, be culturally appropriate and responsive to the populace. And so I have them understand what are my goals for this project. So they're team members when we go. Mm -hmm. You understand part of the aims. I don't tell them all the aims because yeah. I don't want them you know, testing to an outcome. Mm -hmm. yeah. They have an understanding of sort of the gestalt mm -hmm. of the project. And um, we, 2020 would have been our eighth year wow. going with COVID-19, all, all program abroad yeah. were canceled. Yeah. So we did not get to go, but we have been going since 2013 with students in different levels of so undergraduates, masters, PhD and AUD students all working together, experiencing peer leadership. So one day you're in charge, the next day you're taking orders. So I, I, I mix the role so no one becomes too comfortable in the one role. And they're all learning from each other. Having audiology students as part of the experience has improved how I actually collect audiological information about the populace that I didn't think about doing before. I'm thinking, all oh, right, I probably should have done that. Why didn't I think of that? So each cohort that comes informs changes for the next mm. cohort and even in the current um, collecting of data. So I, that is one other um, aspect. And in part of that research, that's how we actually translated and validated the intelligibility and context scale wow. with one of our students having been awarded a Spark Award from ASHA to validate the, the Jamaican Creole version of the um, ICS intelligibility context scale, which is freely available from that Charles Sturt University website, okay. um, Multilingual Children's Speech. That's what it is, Multilingual okay. Children's Speech website. I'll put it on the um, sources for sure. Yes, yes, yes. And it's, it's freely available. And what's unique about this particular version of the ICS in this language, because it's actually translated in over 60 different languages. Jamaican Creole is one of the 60 different languages. And we included an audiological component. So it's available audio to be listened to and then completed in pen and paper format. With the help of a clinician, we did that because Jamaican Creole as a language is actually historically oral. Versus the English, which is the language, the lingua franca of the nation and the classroom is has a, a historical written tradition. Mm -hmm. So because of the disparities between the language and as a researcher, you try to eliminate the confounds and you equalize anything that might be an extraneous factor in influencing your outcome. I presented both the English version and the Creole version audiologically. And this was the first time this was ever done for the ICS and we represented a deviation in this methodological approach. Mm -hmm. So I did, and the, the audiological version, the audio recording is available online, can be downloaded and listened to by anyone. I did the Jamaican Creole version and I had my colleague do the English version. And so parents listen to those recordings and complete the forms. What would be important in other contexts, and it can be audiologically recorded in other settings, um, 
is for languages with low written tradition and for parents and respondees who have low literacy rates. Mm -hmm, yeah. That would also be responsive to them. So that's another way of responding to a contextual factor mm -hmm. in the profile of working with um, children and parents who don't speak the language you speak or for children and family who might speak the same language you do, but are maybe illiterate. Mm -hmm. So that's another way of being responsive. And so one way we'd have we completed our validation study and it has shown that even with the audiological methodological change it doesn't impact the validity because we had we got very strong uh, valid results right. from so the psychometric prep, uh, properties were um were strong mm -hmm. and there is a correlation between because the ics measure is actually a proxy evaluation. So parents report on their observations of their child's ability to be understood by seven different listeners okay. of varying authorities. Okay. Um, and then you rate them um, on a five-point scale. And I think I, 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 you know, of course, I'm going to doubt myself that I got that correct, but I'm pretty sure that <laughs> it, yes, it's a five-point scale and seven is. I just have to double check. Yes, always. <laughs> And so it's the how how intelligible is a child to you, to family members that live with you, to um, family members who don't live with you, to the children's friends, to strangers, to teachers, and to uh, people, acquaint more acquaintances. Oh, that's great. And so you ask the same questions are posed in on the Creole version and on the the um english version it was very funny to look at some of the parents because they didn't quite um it's, it, you don't hear it in an in such an educational setting to be so proper because jamaican creole is more the language of the home mm -hmm. and the language in form informal settings but there have been movements to trying to increase bilingual education in schools mm -hmm. but it's not yet there they tried it once it wasn't as successful as they wanted it to be and they being within jamaica the educational system um, and that did not um, work out, but it's not been abandoned. It's something that will be revisited mm -hmm. down the road. And so we use this um, audiology, the, the recording, and in the sensitivity specificity study, we took it to another level to understand if using these audio recordings in both of these languages, can we still get results that highlight that the tools are able to distinguish difference and disorder or typical development and disorder development and are evidence showed that we still can in fact do so oh that's fantastic and when you so, talk about the different you know the oral versus the written is it when you say that there's been attempts in education there what do you mean by that do they integrate it or is it only how yes so they did try to integrate it in the classroom okay. so having teachers teach the creole and then teach the english like in a bilingual education yeah. project similar to what they do Example in Canada, like French immersion. Yes. Or, you know, so they have both the, the two languages. In, in Canada, for example, English and French are the two primary languages. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they're taught in schools, but not all schools have them. Some schools are monolingual English, some are monolingual French. Mm -hmm. um, but in, it's sort of the same model of bilingual education that was applied there. But uh, one factor that has been sort of a barrier is that no one, the teachers weren't themselves taught this language in the classroom when they were young. Mm -hmm. So you're coming in sideways at this issue. And so it's trying to find a way how we're going to go back far enough to educate the educator. Mm -hmm. And also historically, there has been a tiered relationship between the Creole and the English. Mm -hmm. So the, 
Creoles, been associated with more slavery, mm. uneducation, lack of education, um, poverty. Mm. Whereas English, it was the language of the masters, you know, the language of high society. And so there's this tendency to want to downplay speaking the Creole and uh, upplay, so to speak, the use of English, mm. where proficiency varies in any bilingual context. Mm. And I use the term bilingual intentionally because I'm, I'm putting a, a, a binary system between Creole and not Creole. Mm -hmm. There is research suggesting, and it is true, that there's a diglossic society, so there's a continuum, mm -hmm. the post-Creole continuum in most Caribbean societies mm -hmm. around the world. And what I have chosen is to look at it as a bilingual argument. Mm -hmm. So people refer to lex, you know, so it's the acrolect and the mesolect. Acrolect is closest to English, mesolect is the middle variety, and basilect is the most dissimilar to English. But I look at basilect and mesolect as not acrolect. Mm -hmm. And then within there, you can see features that are not English. Mm -hmm. So depending on your focus, so a linguist might want to make that distinction. But for me, as a speech and language pathologist, mm -hmm. it's English or not. That's we're more binary. And to yes. help with the translation mm -hmm. of that in the speech and language pathology world, mm -hmm. I chose the bilingual route and using techniques like FAWN, mm -hmm. where I can answer questions about things such as what is speech variability a diagnostic marker i didn't begin my research with this i noticed that within the jamaican context that one word could be produced multiple ways but it didn't change the accuracy so the word pig could be pig piggy pigger pigs and still it was still the lexical item pig it didn't mean pigs was more than one pig it was just still a pig variability is something that has yet to be reconciled mm -hmm. in terms of its role as a diagnostic marker of disorder versus is it just a typical variation in development right and so using fawn has helped to streamline mm -hmm. completing those analyses because what you need to do when you're now going to analyze variability in a more scientific experiment is you want to artificially force the children to say the same word and repeatedly mm -hmm. but of course spaced according to a certain protocol mm -hmm. and using fawn we have found that within the jamaican context jamaica and because it's the creole with that continuum i mentioned there is more tolerance of variability mm -hmm. so there's phonemic variation in so like lengthening for example is a distinction in the jamaican context but it's not for english so mm -hmm. depending on how you code what is variable versus what is not variable, you're going to see differences. And we did see those differences in the Jamaican context in bilingual Jamaican English speakers, but not in the English context, where we attributed that to our coding. And we used transcription-based methods informed by FON, which is a computerized program. But our next stage is to move to the acoustic mm -hmm. level using PROT to see how spectrographic analyses help to inform variability and they might be more sensitive to changes that we're not picking up using more transcription based methods. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and such a powerful approach uh, to get to use the acoustics with your, uh, you know, uh, transcription method that seems to make a lot of sense. And I'm wondering what's the speech pathology context down there? In Jamaica? Um, in Jamaica, very, it's an excellent question. It is minimal. Okay. So it's, I am one of, and I'm, I'm counted in the number because I actually have my speech therapy license in Jamaica as well to do this work. I said, I'm going to do this the right way. You know, I'm, I'm respecting the culture. That's another way of being responsive. You know, sometimes in, in Jamaican context, and a lot of Caribbean context, people come from 
North America and Europe saying, well, we know we do, we can, we don't have to follow the rules, but I lead by example with my students. I find out the rules as much as I, I, I am able to learning along the way. And so uh, maybe 10, 10 speech pathologists in the island, maybe mm -hmm. all foreign trained because there's no local program. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the local programs is in Trinidad and Tobago, mm -hmm. but they had restricted entry at the time just to students from Trinidad and Tobago. And so there have been talks about getting one in Jamaica. It has not yet happened, but it, it, the, the talks have not yet been abandoned. Mm -hmm. But um, so, yes, it's very, very small. So services in the schools, the model that we use in North America, it's, it's, not, it's not there. It's more under Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. It's more of a health-based um, model. And I think what they're trying to do is move closer to education. Um, model. When I went, I had spoken and I, I talked about my the ICF, but I say it's mine. It's not mine. It's the World Health Organization's, but I do apply it. Mm -hmm. um, and the benefit of because what the, the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, it's a mouthful, applies a biopsychosocial mm -hmm. uh, model, which incorporates medical and social, mm -hmm. because the medical does relate, but it doesn't always have to be linear. So if we think about someone who had a laryngectomy, for example, and this is a, a female, you removed the larynx because it had the cancer mm -hmm. and or part of the larynx. And now they have to work on uh, having speech therapy to, to reproduce their voice. But now the voice quality is not as good. They might sound more raspy and more male. So medically speaking, the cancer is gone. Mm -hmm. But when you think about how well they're participating, it's very low. The restriction is that they feel very self-conscious about how they sound. Mm -hmm. And so they participate less with others. So this model helps us understand it's not necessarily this linear, it's a multi-directional way in which contextual factors can impact on participation and body functioning that could result in two people mm -hmm with the same medical condition have condition having very different outcomes. I think that's a really important approach to use. And I think it's not used as much as it could in the language disorder aspect, childhood language disorder. Right. I know myself even being at a rehab uh, institute, it's been it's used more, you know, more readily. But my students okay. apply this and I love the work you've done in this way because it gets at using this functionality and thinking and applying it more right. to childhood language disorders. It seems to be so critically important uh, to do. That. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I'll plug that ASHA. It's actually the, it is the framework for the scope of practice, both in speech pathology and audiology, but not many people realize that. I'm always tooting that horn. I plug that in there and it's been adopted by multiple associations in speech pathology around the world, mm -hmm. Australia, Canada. So just as an example of other places that have already adopted this framework for their scope of practice. I think that's really important. And one of the things I hear you saying too a lot is about getting your work out there and getting it accessible and one of the one thing I noticed when I was researching what you are up to, so many things you're up to, is that some of your materials were on the Leaders Project site. And I wanted to draw attention yes. not only to those materials, but also about the Leaders Project. So can you tell me more about the Leaders Project and how this relates yes. to work with Jamaican children? Yes. So the Leaders Project um, is a website. Its developer is Dr. Kate Crowley at Columbia University. She's a speech language pathologist, but with also a degree in law. So she applies law to this area of speech pathology. And she has worked across the um, spectrum um, working. Uh, she has an education abroad program that she goes to in Africa 
um, and she works with Clef, uh, Clef Pilot Training, providing resources to increase the sustainability of uh, services there. So she partners with doctors, sort of similar to a Doctors um, Without Borders mm -hmm. uh, application, and she also takes students to increase the ability of local practitioners to support speech and language within their own communities, sort of a, sort of a more organic experience. And one of the tools that she uses is the speech language assessment materials, the SLAM yes. uh, cards. And the way in which I have been able to collaborate with Kate, Dr. Crowley, is that um, I approached her because I was interested in documenting narrative competence in the Jamaican context from the lens, of course, of a speech and language pathologist. And I didn't really have any resources that I had available to me that I wanted to be able to use. So I thought about what was already there. I go, do I need to reinvent the wheel? We have to be responsive in that I shouldn't use materials that the children aren't gonna be able to respond to. And so when I approached Kate and I saw these pictures and we talked, she was so helpful. They were able, willing to adjust the images so they looked more like Jamaican children and that they included Jamaican artifacts like the Jamaican flag. And the storyline, there's one about a bunny in a classroom, which is something that Jamaican kids have. In the one school we go to, for example, they have a, a rabbit, not a rabbit, sorry, a turtle. Oh. And they do have rabbits too that they use. So I knew that this was an ecologically valid artifact in terms of the storyline and then the other one for english that we use is you know you don't bring a dog home no dogs are allowed inside the house in jamaican society it's not it's not as cultural here to have you know the dog on the bed uh, as it is in north america and so that concept wouldn't be foreign to the children so also my colleague in jamaica professor hubert devonish was able to translate the um the items for the Jamaican Creole story into Jamaican Creole mm -hmm. so that then we use that when talking to the children. So they heard the story in Creole, uh, which is, you know, a bunny goes to school versus hearing it in English, which is a dog comes home. So the same child, we did the within language and between language comparison using these two different stories. And what was different, and so Kate was willing to help with the drawings and making those um, comprehension questions available. So those are the questions that were translated in the Creole context. We didn't only want to look at accuracy. Mm -hmm. We wanted to look at how well the children were able to respond to questions of varying complexity. Mm. So we use the Marion Blank question hierarchy, mm. um, which has not yet been used really in looking at some of these well-published studies, looking at narrative competence in bilingual contexts. Mm. And so we wanted to get that out there. And we, one of the limitations we had was that we did not consider storytelling per se in Creole. Mm. It, was, it was a storytelling task based on a story we translated but they um we did not we were interested primarily in more the story grammar elements because in jamaica the language of the classroom is english mm -hmm. so we wanted to know are the children prepared for that english uh, requirement in the classroom setting so the next level of our study will be to then consider the storytelling within a jamaican story because because jamaican creole has that african um in, uh, influence from west africa it's very possible that there are west african influences in a jamaican story which was you know one of my favorite books growing up was the uh, nancy stories mm -hmm. a very crafty spider who was always trying to connive everyone else to his advantage 
And so that's more of a West African story. Mm -hmm. There's a similar um, concept that there's a moral mm -hmm. applies in almost all stories around the world. And when we think about story grammar elements, generally speaking around the world, they are similar. Mm -hmm. So, and then in some settings, the children based on the context therein might assimilate more to that story grammar element. So we felt that there was still some face validity in our approach, mm -hmm. but naturally it's a limitation in our study because we did not also include that. But that's been the extent of my involvement with the Leaders Project. I hope I did it justice. Um, oh yeah. I can provide the resource to it because there are a lot of, and these I should say, they're freely available on the website with the questions and they're different stories and comprehension questions that accompany them. My colleague, Carol Westby was willing, was the one who helped us code what, what was the complexity level of the comprehension question? Mm -hmm. As you know, Carol Westby is well known. Yes. She works on narratives across different cultures. Mm -hmm. And so I was very honored. Oh, that's great. Part of this um, experience. It's such a great resource when I was looking through it. I mean, I had heard of it, but then when I really looked through it, I was like, wow, this needs to be showcased. And I know a lot of people know about it already, but it, I'll put it into the resources because it is a really important oh, great. Um, resource. Great, great. And I know you talked about your favorite book, but I want it before I'm looking at our time. I want to be mindful, but I do ask every guest two <laughs> questions. And I have so enjoyed this conversation and we've talked about so many different things. But I do want to ask you, what are you most excited about right now that you're working on? Okay. Oh, there's so many things I'm so excited about, to be honest. Um, it's, it, it's just, you never know as a researcher where your career will take you. And my dissertation training had nothing to do with diversity. It was with specific language impairment in monolingual English speaking, majority Caucasian uh, grouping. And I happened to observe a child in a clinical context who was from Jamaica, who was almost going to be misdiagnosed. But my supervisor, knowing I was Jamaican, invited me to come and said, wait, aren't you from Jamaica? What's going on here? And that sort of planted a seed. Mm. And then I, I started thinking about it. And then when I came to University of Cincinnati, I included that as one of my, you know, my, my, my areas of, of study that I will be offering, not knowing it would actually become what it is today. And so um, in thinking about what I'm excited, we recently were awarded an NIH grant oh, to examine this. Thank you very much um, to examine the uh, how the diagnostic contribution of variability in speech sound production. Mm. Is it a diagnostic marker? And we're comparing monolingual children to the Jamaican children. Mm. And we're looking within the Jamaican context itself between Creole and English, what does the variability tell us? And I'm very thankful to my colleagues, Anna Sosa and Toby McRae, who are consultants on this grant, who made their data set available for the monolingual comparison, and to Tara McAllister at NYU, and also Daphna Harrell, who's our statistician, who um, will then you know, work her wonderful ways with the numbers and tell us what we have found. Um, and right now we're we're waiting before we can go back to Jamaica again with the COVID-19 that occurred. So we're, we're, we're in a little holding pattern right now, but I, I, I'm going to say we're going to, they're going to find that vaccine yes. and we're going to get to travel again. And so, so I'm very excited about doing that. And is it, my, does it start now, Carla, or did you have to put it on hold? Well, actually, no, we started, we got the grant last July. Okay. And um, we were supposed to travel in March to Jamaica, March of 2020. And um, so we have other data that we have collected that we can 
start to sort of analyze yeah. have an understanding mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the contribution of variability as a as a diagnostic marker mm -hmm. using um the fawn program mm -hmm. but they were also going to use uh, acoustics looking at duration and this is where dr toby mccray mm -hmm. came in giving us uh, some protocols that we could mm -hmm. follow to answer that question mm -hmm. and so nih has said you know keep yeah. doing what you're doing until you can and they've been you know the nih has been very supportive institutions are working together anyone collecting human subject data right now yes are pretty much <laughs> Right. Some projects are, it depends on the timing, right? Like some projects are luckier than others in terms of timing. It sounds like maybe yours was a bit, I mean, it's unlucky in the sense that you were getting ready to go, but maybe lucky in the sense that you weren't, you hadn't already been in the middle of it, you know? Right. No, no. We already have a lot of data collected. And so I have three doctoral students um, going into their final year and each of them will be focusing on three different products using already collected data from the Jamaica project. Right. And so one is looking at functional communication, which is basically using your speech and language skills to be included with others. And we're using the intelligibility and context scale to look at functional speech. Mm -hmm. And we're using a measure called the focus on the outcomes of communication under six that looks more broadly at functional communication across mm -hmm. different um, areas. Uh, and so we're looking to see how is that related to speech sound production? Does it inform the profile? Mm. We don't know a lot about functional communication, even in monolingual children. Yes. And in well-studied bilingual pairings, we don't know enough. So in understudied pairings, we know even less. Yes. So we're hoping to fill that gap, mm. improve that knowledge base. My other student, Michelle Leon, so that was Leslie Kokotek. Mm. Michelle Leon is going to be building acoustical models mm. to see how a variation in speech at a single word level in terms of what I described earlier about how the same word can be produced differently, um, how it can inform difference and disorder in um, bilingual context. And then Rachel, right, Karam, is looking at using how adult models from the same linguistic community inform alternate scoring procedures. So can we devise alternate scoring procedures based on adult models so that when we look at those boundaries for what is average, what's below average, are there is there movement mm -hmm. when we have adult models versus mm -hmm. when we don't? Mm -hmm. So is there a change? And so she's looking at that as well as cross-linguistic effects mm -hmm. between English and Creole. So I'm having all this excitement and we've applied the index of productive syntax, which is an, a language analysis tool to understand um, morphosyntactic development in a bilingual context. And our study was able, which was published in LSHSS last year, was one of the first to look at applying this model, this analysis tool in both languages spoken by bilingual children. Mm -hmm. It's been used in a monolingual context for children who do not speak English, in bidialectal context where children speak variations of the mainstream, and in bilingual children, but only looking at English. Mm. So we have found that it can be appropriate because it doesn't actually bias the child. And in fact, it takes into consideration code mixing. It doesn't, it doesn't count against the child when code mixing occurs, which is a naturally occurring phenomenon of being bilingual. Mm -hmm. And so we have this tool, but what we did notice is that not every morphosyntactic structure is used well by all of these children. So modifications mm -hmm. are, are needed. And so it, it was just very wonderful to see that we had a tool with a structure. It's a psycholinguistic model, applied psycholinguistics, 
um, available from Dorothy Scarborough. And um, using it was a very good learning experience for me to understand those those sort of uh, grammatical boundaries between languages and how it can be varied from a monolingual child, English speaking, using those same um, grammatical boundaries. And so understanding what the differences are, maybe what similarities might exist, mm -hmm. is going to be important for clinical practice. Yeah. So we made recommendations in that paper about um, how it could be applied to this population of children. And also, I think you do, do you have a, a piece coming out in DLD and Me on functional communication? Did you write a piece there? Oh, I haven't written that yet. I mean, I haven't. It's, it's going through the process. Yeah. It's going through the process. Yes. Yet. Yeah, I saw that. It came across. And I, I was thinking, oh, that's perfect timing. We'll make sure. It'll probably be out by the time this is out or close to. So we'll get that up because that'll be oh, so nice. great. You've talked about a lot. And when you put it all together in that piece, I thought it was so clear and well done. And that'll be oh. a great piece to have on the resource page too, in terms of functionality and all of these different types of measures coming together. I think that's fantastic. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. With the project. And so glad that you, it's a bit COVID proof. I say that you've got, <laughs> yes, on page, you've got the data, you've been going yes. for some time and I'm very hopeful we'll get back. So you didn't mention it briefly, but what is your favorite book? from childhood. Okay, so I mean, I, oh, it's so hard to pick one. My mom was a librarian, right? Oh, so we had a library at home and she worked in publishing. And so we were all about books growing up and we couldn't watch, we, our television time was dictated by how many books we read. So one book equaled one hour of television. It didn't matter how many pages were in that book. She didn't come. So the big book it didn't matter. And so I learned to read very That's quickly. Brilliant. I liked watching TV. Steal that so from your mom, Carla. <laughs> <laughs> that is why I didn't think it was brilliant when I was a child. Yeah. Because I wanted to watch TV. And so I remember my mom would read us the and Nancy's stories. And rather than just read it, she would act it out and we'd sit and we'd dramatize and role play. And so in my mind, those Nancy's stories were very fond memories of being together with my sisters and my parents. So it was, I really enjoyed those story times. And also, I have to say, my mom also had us um, read the Bernstein Bears. Mm. So there was always an experience of, you know, going to the dentist or negotiating and sharing. And so she would always use them as this sort of moral compass guide about these different ways we should learn to be. I'm thinking, Mom, they are not even real. Why are we thinking about how bears and bears can't even talk? Why are we even thinking about this? I oh, I, I think your mom and I are really connected because I have to say, I use the Berenstein Bears too. And when we were moving here from Nebraska several years ago, I got the Berenstein Bear moves, you know? And then when my son was going to kindergarten, Berenstein Bears go to kindergarten. The dentist, I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm like, there you go. I will have to tell her. She and then the other book that I, as I grew up, I I really enjoyed Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys. Oh yeah. And so I feel like picking a favorite story is hard because each of them sort of represented a time in my life that I can then relate back to. And so if I were to sort of say one group of books that that would be um, what they are. That's awesome. Well, I have to say it's, uh, uh, you know, I ask everyone this question, but I've avoided it myself because on my first website, I wanted to have something unique for each student and I asked them to give me their favorite book, but I never oh. chose. And then I finally had oh. to commit. I was, I was with you on the Nancy Drew and I've, you know, reluctantly committed because it's really hard, but I, I, oh. I can't help but ask people because I think it's such a 
a critical period of childhood. And then also just you know, even now people have their favorite books they like, you know, and they go back to yes. so you taking going out on the limb and choosing a book is very helpful. Well, an amazing discussion. I cannot wait to share all of this great information with the listeners. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I'm really hopeful you'll be back to traveling to Jamaica sooner sooner than later, for sure. Yes, yes, thank you. And I, I thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about this. And I feel very blessed by what I'm doing. They say, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I have to tell you that I feel that I, I don't really work at it because I, I really enjoy it. It makes me happy to do this work. And so thank you very much for allowing me to be able to share this um, about the work that I do. So thank you. Thank you too. Check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.